This is Hashtag Authentic, a podcast for creatives online. I'm Sarah Tasker and this is episode 56. Hi everybody. So how do you feel about public speaking? Despite this podcast having just passed over a million downloads, thank you all so much. And despite occasionally even doing Instagram lives to my like 200,000 plus audience, I have to admit I actually still kind of hate it. So when my guest today wrote a book on how to own the room and nail public speaking just by being yourself, I knew I immediately needed to get a copy and also have her share some of that brilliant wisdom with you all on the podcast. The speaking event Viv and I discuss for me in the interview you're about to hear has just happened in Ireland. And it was a really wonderful event and the conversation actually really did help me. I had a copy of the book with me and I was reading it on the plane over. I think it's a really important conversation about how as creatives and often as women, we are presented to the world and finding a space where we can just be ourselves. So I hope you get as much out of what you're about to hear as I did. Hi Viv, welcome to Hashtag Authentic. Hello, how are you? I'm good, it's good to have you on. I'm really excited to be here. So for anyone who's not come across you yet, could you give us a quick introduction to who you are and what you do? Oh, who am I? It's the essential <laughs> question. Okay, so my name is Viv Groskop, um, which is a name I haven't really enjoyed owning across my life because it's so ridiculous. <laughs> um, I am a writer, a comedian, and I am now the author of a book called How to Own the Room, which is about women, power, presence, and public speaking, which draws on the work I've started to do with lots of women in all kinds of walks of life um, about learning how to present themselves better, how to speak if even if they have to you know be in a job interview or if they have to give a speech to a thousand people and I started to do this kind of work as a result of starting stand-up comedy quite late in life in my late 30s and because I was quite new to it and learning how to do it lots of people I knew would uh, I know would ask me to come into their work and give a talk on like how did you manage to do that from nothing to doing stand-up and then that sort of just grew organically into me teaching, you know, presentation and, and public speaking, which I just find amazing and fascinating. And increasingly, I was being asked to teach this to women. I do teach mixed groups. And mm. I think women and men have a lot of similar problems in this area. But I think women in particular know what it feels like to feel small in a public situation and not be confident about getting out there and saying, yeah, this is what I have to say. Here it is. Um, and also because a lot of companies now have budgets for diversity and equality and inclusion, um, that's a, that's a growth, um, area for a lot of companies that they're trying to give women a voice. So yeah, that was a very long introduction to who I am, but yeah. It's fascinating. There's so much I want to dive into there. Um, first of all, how did you get into being stand-up comedian oh. at age 30 um the short answer is is midlife crisis <laughs> at 30 uh, I hope that's not midlife oh yeah exactly well I don't know in in the olden days late 30s would easily be midlife True. hopefully not 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 anymore and um, the longer answer is I would say delayed ambition and delayed life dreams and cutting myself off from mm the thing I really wanted to do and being scared of it for too long. 
So as a child, I desperately wanted to be a performer, um, actress or a stand-up comedian. I used to love uh, Doris in The Kids from Fame. Like people of my age, uh, 40s, will will remember that. Other people won't. (laughs) Um, I loved Tracy Ullman. I loved Victoria Woods. I loved French and Saunders. And I was really dreaming of that that life. But I had no idea how you got there. Um, I grew up in a in a village in Somerset. Um, my parents were both uh, very lovely, but not um, media people or mm. showbiz people. So I had, you know, no nobody I knew in London, no way of doing anything like that. So I sort of put those those what I thought were very silly dreams on ice and uh, worked really hard at school and decided that instead I would become a writer because that seemed crazy enough to me so I went into writing and journalism I did quite a lot of uh, drama and some stand-up and theatre when I was at um at university and weirdly I actually forgot about this for a long time but when I was 18 I did a show at university Stephen Fry you forgot Stephen Fry really wanted to do but it never kind of went anywhere all of those things when I was in my late teens so I just I just always felt like oh it's obviously not for me and I think I had this idea that I think a lot of us have this idea that you're going to get plucked out mm. of nowhere to do this amazing thing that you want to do. That if it's meant to be, it'll yeah, find and if, you. Yeah, and if you don't get plucked, that it wasn't meant to be. Mm. And it took me a long time, like maybe 20 years of adult life, to realise, oh, no, n- nobody gets plucked. You just have to do it. You have to choose yourself. Like... um the American uh, marketing guru, Seth Godin, I'm a big fan of his uh, daily newsletter. He says, choose yourself. And in the internet age, everybody, you're a great example of this, Sarah, choose yourself. You know, you decide the career that you want and you go out and do it. And lo and behold, if you really believe in it, then people will buy into it. My story is similar to yours, less courageous, but I was 30 when I left my NHS day job and started what I do now and it was a very similar experience of just like getting to a point where I was like oh like these these skills are not going to not going to be used if I don't put them to use yeah but I like you say I think it does take a lot of courage and confidence to to do that and I think it's also it's also about not believing the hype that we all grow up with that well I don't know if people grow up with it so much nowadays but I definitely grew up with it in the 1970s and 1980s that you need to have a steady job you need Mm. to have you need to have other people giving you approval for what you do you need to have permission for what you do otherwise it doesn't count and I think that's that seems to be especially prevalent for women we really want we want all the qualifications and the bits of paper and all the evidence that we're worthy before we are ready to really dive in and do it. Yeah, and that is so toxic. You know, that's what um, this. There's this uh, a writer of uh, this book called Playing Big called Tara Tara Moore. Yeah, we've had her on the podcast. She's brilliant. Yeah, and she calls all of that stuff good girl behaviour. Yes, because in school, I mean, let's not denigrate doing well in school. Doing well in school is probably never going to harm you. Um, but doing badly in school is not necessarily going to harm you either. But 
getting all of those A grades and certificates and, and gold stars, uh, that works for you, especially as a girl in school. But in later life, it doesn't serve you at all. And I think that's something I've been really slow to learn, is that actually taking risks and putting what you want out there and doing something really stupid like becoming a stand-up comedian in your late 30s when you're already a journalist. (laughs) That was so the right thing for me to do, even though it had a lot of downsides and it was kind of stupid in inverted commas. It has led to amazing things. It sounds terrifying. I have to say it sounds way scarier than what I did because oh, it's so no, visible. I think it's much scarier. Really? <laughs> well, this is it's really interesting, isn't it? Because we all have our blind spots. Yeah. Uh, and for me, like the visual world that you create, I would be so frightened of even trying to do that because it's so out of my comfort zone and beyond my abilities. Whereas doing stand up, for me, it became more scary to not do it because I felt I was betraying myself Mm. I was letting myself down by not getting into it um the actual doing of it of course it's scary it would be stupid to say it isn't of course um you get scared before you go on stage that's a that's a natural human physiological reaction and I've seen um you know I've worked with loads of household names and I've seen Michael McIntyre pace the stage before he goes on um it's a normal natural thing to have adrenaline i think maybe we should rename it as adrenaline rather than nerves um and often that adrenaline fuels a better performance because you're raising the stakes and the audience needs need the stakes to be high um for it to be a really great important performance Yeah. So the scariness for me, though, it's funny. Lots of people say, oh, stand up, that must be so scary. Actually doing it is not scary for me. Not doing it is scary because it means I've given up. Um, The thing, though, that is really scary in doing a career like this is how do you sustain it after a number of years? Right. Because it's not like you just prove yourself once and then you're there. This is something you've got to kind of keep keep winning at. Yeah. And maybe I don't know if there are parallels in the social media world as well, where at the beginning you have a lot of energy. You have the energy of launch, Mm. of the excitement of like, oh, this is new for you, but also for other people like, oh, there's this amazing new person. Oh, this is a new Instagram feed that I'd never seen before. Oh, this is a new woman doing stand up comedy. I haven't seen her before. Oh, that's exciting. And that buzz will last you for a couple of years. But after that, you've got to find the next thing to keep people interested. Absolutely. So have you found the next thing? Well, for me, I'm still I'm still trying to work that out, Sarah. If you have any tips, then let me know. (laughs) Um, I've always had a sort of diverse portfolio career where I do lots of different things. And I really enjoy that. And I think it suits me. I've got quite a butterfly mind and I'm quite interested in other people and yeah, I quite like mixing it up. And also I have three children, I'm married, and I don't want to have a career where I have to go and do a residency in Las Vegas for a year. Mm. Although actually, if I got offered a residency in Las Vegas for a year, I'd probably just get divorced and abandon my children. Las Vegas, <laughs> if you're listening, she's available. Yeah, no, in reality, I would not do these things. Um, yeah, so the challenge for me is to keep hold of the things that matter to me in my life and still do the things I want to do creatively and professionally 
And it's an amazing freedom and a luxury to be able to do that. We, we think we are so lucky that we can, but it also is, it, it brings its own challenges, absolutely, constantly trying to stay ahead of the curve and reinvent yourself and, and be ready for whatever comes next. Yeah, absolutely. And in some ways, the environment that we're in now, compared to 10 or 20 years ago, it's amazing because it's very conducive to those reinventions. It makes it a lot easier. Um, I think, you know, 20 years ago, you you maybe had a career high or you achieved a certain audience and a certain attention at, at, at a particular moment. And you didn't have the means yourself to sustain that. You know, <laughs> everything belonged to the gatekeepers, you know, so agents, managers. I mean, you know, a career like yours, this is so interesting because, well, not only would Instagram not have existed and but even if you had that career as a as a visible photographer or something, then you would probably have somebody managing you. Yeah, I was just writing the introduction for my book. Never too late to be writing the introduction out in February, but that's fine. Um, and plenty of time. You're fine. Yeah, that's fine, right? Mm. Um, but this is exactly what I was saying. Kind of by the old the old measures of success, I just didn't stand a chance. Like because I live in Yorkshire in a little village. I didn't want to move to London like I'd left all my dreams far too late really to get started on and if the internet hadn't existed I would have been really beholden to someone else agreeing to give me a chance and I don't think it would have happened. Yeah it's not only that it's also even if you do get that person and you do really well you're kind of at their mercy. Right yeah. In that they are then deciding oh are you cool enough to for me to keep on investing in you or is there now somebody else behind you who's five years younger than you who's doing what you were doing five years ago and oh I'm really interested in that person it's terrifying it's pretty toxic so being able to take control of that yourself and mold what you want to do yeah it's hard work I mean it's also it is first world problems as you suggested but it's hard work but I think it's very very worth it so let's kind of loop back around to owning the room. So as a stand-up comedian, this is something presumably, did you find it hard before you made that leap? Were you already pretty confident at public speaking? Yeah, that's a good question. I think I'm I'm fairly, I'm definitely in the, uh, on the spectrum of people who are really confident with public speaking and probably a bit too confident and <laughs> annoying. You know, I'm. If don't ever go to karaoke with me because I will dominate that mic. Have you always been like that? Um, yes, I've always been like Just that. Made that way. Yeah, I've always felt pretty comfortable with that. Um, I guess I've always been slightly scared, and maybe this is a woman thing actually, of um, that being obnoxious. Um, <laughs> obviously, like Jane Rivers was not was not scared of that no but yeah I think I always wanted to be the one like grabbing the mic off other people and being like no 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 I need to speak (laughs) (laughs) and maybe part of the reason of me staying away from it for so long was that I was scared of the obnoxious side of that so it's not likable to be to be the one that wants to speak it's not yeah feminine yeah so that was an issue for me, but actually being scared of getting up there, n- not really, no. There were tons of other things holding me back, but it wasn't really that. So it puts you in a natural position then to be writing this book for people like me who are 
just way out of their element when they are speaking in front of any number of people. Yes. And it makes me so sad to think that you feel that way. And I really hope that this book does and the other stuff that I'm teaching and going to be talking about for a long time to come. I hope I, I really hope it helps people like you who feel that way because you're depriving us of of your gift. That probably sounds really hippie. You have a great voice. You look amazing. You have an incredible story to tell. Please share it. It's a funny thing because I think I suspect a lot of people who feel like me kind of introverted will relate. If it, if I'm at home in my on my own in my bedroom, then I'm I can nail it. Like I'm an amazing public speaker as long as there's no public. I can mm-hmm. do it in my car. But there is something about when everybody's eyes are on you and you feel like you're being judged. And I do think it has a lot to do with being a woman and all those layers of stuff that you kind of carry around with you about how you look and how you sound and whether you're being liked and what kind of response you're getting from the audience and a lot of us have a lot of empathy and you're kind of processing all of that stuff at the same time um it's a it's a lot yeah this is so fascinating to me how how old are you Sarah if you don't mind me asking. I am 35 okay so you're 35 I'm 45 I think there's a really interesting gap that maybe just cuts off like slightly older wet than you are where I find it so fascinating that women like you who are having these amazing internet businesses um, and inspiring people, they are not comfortable often with having the same audience in public as they have online. And I hear this from a lot of younger women. So uh, I don't want to say who it is. I don't want to embarrass her. But I recently interviewed um, a very successful young woman who's about 29 or 30 who runs an amazing podcast and she is a best-selling writer and she has an audience of millions. She's Mm -hmm. huge. And she was asking me about what it's like to go on Radio 4, to go on Woman's Hour, which I've done a lot. Um, And she was wanting to turn it down. She said, I'm going to turn it down because I don't want to I don't want to be scrutinized by all those people. Oh, but it's a woman's hour. It's obviously everyone's dream. Yeah. And I said, when you go out and do what you do, you speak to way more people than women's hour will ever reach. Do you not understand that you're already exposing yourself? <laughs> and you, Sarah, you're doing the same thing. You're already out there. You're just doing it in a way that protects yourself a bit. Yeah. Um, and the question is, I'm not saying that from a judgment. I'm just saying that's a fact. And the, I guess the question becomes for people, are you comfortable with that? And that's how you want to stay, because I think that's fine. Or are you actually doing it from a place of fear where you wish that you could do the same on a public platform, that you just you just can't push yourself out of your comfort zone? Because I don't want to be, in, you know, the person who's forcing people to be a stand-up comedian when that's their absolute worst nightmare. That's not right. You know, that level of public performance is not right for everybody, and it would be stupid to pretend that it is. But I, what I would like to do is help women who secretly want to be able to go and talk about their website in front of 100 people go and do a radio interview, go and do a, uh, start doing a video series to promote their work. Uh, that's the kind of thing I'd like to help people with. 
And there's so many opportunities now with things like um, Instagram have a live broadcasting platform so you can literally stream your face to Instagram TV. Yep, absolutely. And Facebook Live, even YouTube has live broadcasting now. So it's kind of all there at our fingertips. Um, But yeah, you're absolutely right that it's it's there's an element of control, I think, when when you're able to choose what you put out there to the world and and I'm so much more confident in writing than I am in speaking so I've naturally kind of shaped all of my online presence around that. I'm sure that's very interesting for people listening to this podcast to hear because they hear for themselves that you are great at speaking. But I'm in my living room in my (laughs) pyjamas. Well that's okay maybe you create what you need to create from there. Maybe that's the secret yeah. Well, that was one of the things I've really been enjoying in the book, actually, is that, like you say, it's not about kind of trying to shoehorn everybody into a, this is how everyone needs to get on stage and talk. It's very much about kind of finding your own strengths and how to play to them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's really key for women to do this now. And it's key for them to do it fast as well, if they possibly can, because I feel as a you know, I keep going on about how old I am. Maybe it's because I don't, I feel a bit tired at the moment. <laughs> but I, at my advanced age, especially now, because like my eldest child is 14. My daughter is a son. My daughter is 12. My other son is eight. I feel like time is going past really, really quickly. And over the last 20 years, I've watched feminism and the voices of women really stall you know, mm. up to the point that we're currently at in the global situation of 20 years ago, if you'd have told me that we'd be discussing, in some ways, it's really good that we're discussing these things. But, you know, Gloria Steinem and Jermaine Greer talked about these things 50 years ago. Yeah. And so I feel like this work is really urgent. And I feel that the only way we're going to break through all of this is by more women finding their voices and talking in the way they want to talk that feels natural to them that isn't like the way that Hillary Clinton was clobbered over the head of well you don't speak like this and you don't speak like that and you're too nice oh no you're not nice enough oh you're too loud no you're not loud enough Uh, we've got to find a way for more women to come forward so that those accusations can stop and so that we see that there are so many different kinds of communicating. Now, I always uh, love to give this example. If you think in your mind of what the communication leadership and speaking style is of a football manager, like mm. I know absolutely nothing about football, but I can see in my mind's eye when I think of football manager about 10 different men. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't probably be able to tell you all their names. <laughs> Alex Ferguson. Yeah, he's the only one I can That's probably it. Gary Lineker, was he one? Probably not. Something like Um, that. But you think of like men in that area, which is a tiny area, tiny, so tiny that like I don't even know what their names are. They would have completely different speaking styles. Yeah. Completely different. They, They would have nothing in common, each of those men. And yet they're all able to project leadership power presence authority authenticity in a way that people believe in them and and don't criticize them and just think oh yeah that's you doing your job and there's really no equivalent of that for women you know that there are some brilliant women showing amazing speaking styles 
but the numbers game is is against us at the moment so we just don't see enough of these styles so that's what i would love is you know for more introverted women to come forward and say i hate speaking and i might not do this brilliantly but this is what i have to say and you better listen carefully because i'm going to talk quite quietly because i don't like loud people <laughs> that's that's what we need I is just to see this incredible diversity of of voices and presentation styles and not trying to have to fit into the kind of it's quite a masculine mold of of the ted talker with the headset and the pacing up and down the stage because that's not going to be everybody yeah well a really good antidote to that that illustrates what i'm saying is uh susan kane who's the writer of a book called quiet which is about the power of introverts in a noisy world and her TED Talk is fascinating because it's all about how she wants to communicate with the world, but feels like that would go against everything inside her. It makes her skin crawl to think about getting up in front of people. And yet she's written this book and she knew that it would be a good idea to do the TED Talk. So she's tried to do a TED Talk as an introvert and she's a brilliant speaker. It's just we very rarely see that kind of speaking. It's funny for me. So I earlier this year, I was invited to be keynote speaker at an event in Australia. Um, oh, please don't tell me you turned it down. No, no, I went. I had to take my husband and oh. my daughter because I was oh. too scared to go alone. But I went. And oh, I well done. Did it. And it was, a, it was a beautiful event. And it was full a room full of just my people. I wanted to be best friends with every single person I spoke to there. Um, but I had to come to this kind of realization actually that I, I couldn't do it as a, as a typical Ted talker that just, it wasn't me. And if I did, it would have come across so inauthentic and so disingenuous for me to try and pull out this different person to the person that everyone then maybe knew from the podcast or knew from my Instagram, it would have just been really jarring anyway, not that I could have done it. But um, so, and I mean, I have a health condition that means if I stand up, my heart rate, I get too breathless. So I had to sit down and I just had to give this, I think it was about a 40 minute talk that was, that was very, it didn't tick a lot of the boxes, I think of kind of a, a normal public speaking keynote speech. Um, and I found that really, what I found hardest about that was just accepting it, just accepting that that was my style of public speaking I suppose and, and that obviously there's things I can improve on within it but because there's not very many role models I think I, until you've seen someone else do it it goes back to that thing of thinking that it's not worthy and it's you want someone to tell you that it's okay that's amazing that you did that did what was the feedback that you got it was all lovely I've not had any negative feedback no it was glowing and and the conversations I had with the women afterwards were I think they were we were, we felt more connected because I think they related to me. Most of the people in the room were introverts as well. That's why we're all on, on the internet instead of out in the world. So, you know, we found our way of selling ourselves that way. And so I think the the feeling I got was that people could relate an awful lot to how I felt on the stage and felt like they knew me and that it was more intimate because of that. And how did you feel while you were doing it and just afterwards? While I was doing it, I suppose I was just focused on the doing so I felt okay. But afterwards, I f- wanted to crawl into a small space and hide. <laughs> <laughs> it 
And do you see now that that was silly because you only had good feedback? Yeah. I mean, it's hard. It's hard, isn't it? That inner critic. Um, it's a process for me to kind of, I'm, I'm still, still convincing myself that it's okay. Yeah, well, the process is happening whether you like it or not. <laughs> yeah. How many people were in the room? Uh, maybe about 200. Sorry, my post, that was my postman just showing some stuff through the door. That's incredible. 200 people in Australia. Yeah. And I'm, and next week I'm going to Ireland to speak in front of about 250. So this is a very timely conversation for me, actually. Yeah. Are you going to approach that in the same way? Well, I have slides this time. Um, Ooh. I don't know. I've gone fancy. I've gone fancy. Um, uh, but I hope I can bring that. I, I, I think... I don't have a choice. I can only bring myself to that stage. And that's that's the lesson I feel like I'm in the middle of learning. Oh, that is a great lesson. I love that. Like, I don't have a choice. All you get is me. Yeah. Well, your book has you. been helping me with that, genuinely. Oh, I'm so glad. I think it's the first time I'd heard that message, really, of like, that's okay. You don't have yeah. to work on that. You just need to embrace that. Yeah, that is okay. And it's. I think that's so powerful, the idea that, basically all you get is me that is it that's it and if you don't like it well too bad because <laughs> that is all there is and you know if you in life some people love us and they get us and they others don't yeah and that's not the end of the world that's hard isn't it though as a woman I think that's that's hard because the likability thing again you've kind of been conditioned as a girl to think you're worth comes from making everybody like you so then to stand on a stage or to do any sort of public uh, presentation where you risk rejection is is really difficult oh I think your worth comes from being the person who can say thanks very much for inviting me yes I would like to come to Australia by the way I'm going to sit on a chair because I have a medical condition so either I sit on the chair or you don't get a speech I, I think that's amazing. <laughs> I love that. That's so great. You know, that's exactly what we need to see. Because actually, although you may think to your self-critical self, oh, no, I did it wrong because I sat in a chair. <laughs> like the audience would be thinking, oh, my God, this is so interesting. This is different. She wants to sit in a chair. Oh, if I did this, I'd probably want to sit in a chair. And that's actually going to be more productive and interesting for the audience than if you stand up and give, in inverted commas, the perfect keynote. Like, even the word keynote is horrific. <laughs> yeah. you know, nobody actually wants to go and see a keynote. Um, most keynotes are incredibly boring. And most, in inverted, in inverted commas, good speakers are incredibly boring. It's the people who do something different who say, Ugh, this is not within my comfort zone. So I'm going to do some things that make it a bit more in my comfort zone. Those are the people that we do want to hear from. And I suppose this actually goes back to something I teach an awful lot, which is online. The things that make you unique, the things that are you, are the things that are kind of a beacon that will call out to your right people. And that's how you'll find the people who want to read your stuff or buy your book or buy your products they'll know that you'll like them and they'll know it's for them by those by those things that make you unique. And you're really just saying the same thing to me about public speaking. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. 
It's interesting to me, though, what you said about um, the fear of criticism, the fear of rejection, because I absolutely have experienced that. Everybody experiences that. How have you got over that in terms of your approach to your Instagram feed and that idea of post what's unique? I guess the thing that gives me comfort online is the thought that there's enough to go around for everybody. So it doesn't matter if that one person decides to unfollow me or 100 people decide they don't like what I've done. That's fine because there'll be 100 people somewhere else that do. And maybe I get stuck on public speaking because there's only so many people in the room. Yeah, so the public speaking is a slightly different version of that because you could experience face-to-face rejection. Is that yeah, what it is? Yeah, maybe it is that. Maybe it's the confrontation. And and I do, I get really into that space when I'm on a stage. Sorry, this has turned into just like a full-on counselling session. Who me. doesn't love a full-on counselling session? <laughs> I'm sure it's helpful for other people. I can't be the only one <laughs> feeling this, right? When I'm, on, when I'm on a stage or even just talking to a small room of women, I'm looking at everybody's faces and I'm I'm trying to think, are, are you are you mad? Are you hating this? Or is that just your, your relaxed listening face? Yeah. Okay, this is a really, really important uh, thing to talk about. So I've been in this position hundreds, maybe thousands of times. <laughs> um, and I've been in the position where I know and I have physical proof afterwards that people hated me. Okay. So it's not just in my mind. Because, you know, in comedy there are going to be nights when you bomb and where the audience turns against you and you can't deny it. You can't just get up and say, well, you can get up and say, okay, fine. It wasn't for you, but you can't deny that you bombed. Um, I think in probably the kind of events that you would do, it would be very unlikely for you to bomb on the level that a stand-up comedian would bomb. Although if you ever do, please record it because it'll be hilarious. (laughs) Um, But the, the trick that I've learned is it's two things really. One, for you personally, do not look at everybody in the audience. And if you like make practice making eye contact across the room in a way that is slightly glazed. Okay. Right. And make sure your eye is drawn to, if it must be drawn to someone, to the person who's loving it. Because there's always somebody who's loving it and it, or who just gets you or who has empathy or sympathy. Because if you can find, say, four compass points in the room where you're getting a good energy from somebody, mm. then and focus on them and do it for them. And sometimes there may only be one person. Fine. Do it for them and just look away occasionally because otherwise you might freak them out a bit. <laughs> so that kind of trick eye contact or focusing on the people who are loving it, that's really important. The other important point is... Why are you putting so much pressure on the other people in the room? You're putting so much pressure on them to give you all the love. Yeah. And to give you all the understanding. They may be having a shit day. They may have a hangover. (laughs) They may have been forced to go to that event to support somebody else who wants to be there. But actually, they're just not that interested in it. And they want to go and watch a video about football managers. (laughs) Um, They could have just had news yesterday that somebody in their family has a terminal illness. This is what I always focus on when I'm really, really nervous, okay? Imagine that there's somebody in the audience who's just had news that somebody in their family has a terminal illness and they've come here to distract themselves from that or they paid so much for the ticket that they don't want to lose the ticket value, but really they shouldn't have come because they should be at home crying. Um, 
you know, there could be somebody in the audience who uh, who is sick themselves, who yeah. do- doesn't feel very well. Um, they are not going to be able to rearrange their faces into an expression that suits you and supports you in that moment. Totally, totally true. I mean, this is all quite brutal stuff. No, but it's so tr- It's so obvious, isn't it? When you say yeah. it, it's like, oh, of course. So the problem with all of us when we take centre stage in a in a tiny way, or even in a job interview, if you're with one other person, or in a massive way, if you've got two hundred people in a room, a thousand people in a room, it really helps to think this is not just about me, or if you can, this is not at all about me. And focus on the other person and use your imagination, which you're currently using to invent all kinds of anxieties and potential negative criticisms, which will probably not happen anyway. Use your your imagination to think about what that person might be going through and what you can do to make things better. It goes back to, I remember like... Oh, in my early 20s I went for some CBT and one of the things that I really took from that was that if someone's kind of rude to you or like you know someone doesn't return your call or you walk past a friend in the street and they blank you the the trick was to think of 10 reasons that had nothing to do with you that that had happened yeah it's great advice it is good advice I still use that now like my 20 year old self was obviously way more neurotic because I don't feel I would need to do that most of the time now but it it is the same exercise isn't it it's to say okay that person on the front row I'm not too sure they're into this but it's easy to come up with at least 10 reasons that are nothing to do with you yeah and I think if you train yourself to do it over a number of times it just becomes second nature and it actually then becomes quite powerful because you can really concentrate on the message that you're trying to get across to people. Because I think this it's difficult for a lot of women because they don't have so many opportunities. And again, one of the things I've included in the book is how to generate more opportunities for yourself instead of waiting for them to be given, create them. Um, but women don't have as many opportunities to practice this. Um, And I think they don't feel so confident going into a space saying, this is my message. This is my my call to action. This this is how I want the world to change. Because they're so busy thinking, oh, God, what if everybody thinks I'm shit? What if I shouldn't really be here? Maybe I've worn the wrong thing. Maybe everyone hates me because I said that I was going to sit down. (laughs) They're they're very (laughs) distracted by all these totally normal things. It's totally normal to feel this way. But they're so distracted by all this that they don't bring their gift. You know, you've got to bring your gift. We've all got one. In the book, like you said, you you do, you, you've got lots of ideas about how people can get more experience, but also I really like you've got lots of suggestions for how people can come up with ideas of things that they want to talk about. Because I suspect there might be people here listening thinking, well, this is all well and good, but like I've not been offered any speaking opportunities or I run a really small, quiet business from my home and maybe like I don't have, they think they don't have anything to share with the world. Mm. Um, so well, what advice have you got for those people? Well, we all have expertise. Um, you know, some of our expertise might lie in always making yourself available to watch your favorite television program at the same time every week. Um, I fail at that. I would like to know how people <laughs> manage to do that. All your expertise could lie in um, how to build a small business or how to reach out to people locally so that they find out about your business or how to cope with adversity because nobody gives a shit about your business. (laughs) Um, 
we all have expertise because we all have experience and we love hearing about other people's expertise and experience so the key is is building it into a story is working out what that is and then building it into a story and i think the way you work out what your expertise is is to talk to people around you who you know are supportive um and depending on sort of what area you want to talk in i think it's really helpful to talk to people you used to work with so look at and maybe not even people who know you that well but say you know for example for you if you were at a, a earlier stage in what you were doing then you could go back to some of your colleagues in the NHS and say look I've built this uh, Instagram business it's a fledgling business um, it's taking off um, I'd really like to prepare some talks for people about my business and what I do if I did those talks what things would you want to hear from me? What would you want to know? And then you're finding out those things from a lay audience. So yeah. you're, you're sort of trying to anticipate the questions of an audience in advance so that you know what other... Sometimes we ourselves do not know what is the most interesting thing about us because the things that we do, we do quite naturally. Yeah, we just take it for granted. Yeah, I'm sure for you, you've had to think a lot about this and, and you teach this. Um, but probably before you started doing that, you didn't think about how to take a beautifully composed photograph because you just did it. Yeah, and then extrapolating it back into steps is is kind of yeah. the, the secret to then teaching it to someone else. Yeah, so it's really finding out from other people what it is that they could learn from you. The internet can be a really helpful tool for this as well. If people do have an online audience, like Instagram has a questions feature now you can stick in your stories where you could literally say to people, like, what would you like more information about from me? Or like, how can I help you? Yeah, exactly. And I think that's such an informative process to undertake because sometimes, like, I'm coming up with questions now for this book, How to Own the Room, because people are starting to you know ask what's in the book and how can it help me and and people are already starting to message like is there anything in it for people who think they're going to throw up as soon as they go on stage <laughs> and I'm thinking oh no maybe I didn't put in enough information about that <laughs> there's definitely some information um but another part of me is thinking oh I'm not the best place person to answer that actually I think you might need to go and see a hypnotherapist mm -hmm. if you had a serious physiological physiological problem um so it also te it teaches you where you can help and it also teaches you where you can't and then you can really narrow in and you know blow up the stuff that you're really good at and that you do know about and I guess we don't need to wait for an audience we don't need to wait for an invitation anymore because we can put it out there on the internet we can find a platform yeah no that you're so right but I would also say in life never ever wait for an invitation because fuck me that invitation is sorry for swearing on your podcast it's all good that um, invitation is never coming believe me you know I've been through this in writing in comedy uh, in speaking in every like the invitation is not coming you've yeah. got to create it first you know show up and do stuff and then people will be interested if you don't believe in yourself you can't ask anyone else to believe in you no you can't and and they're quite right not to to be honest 
I think. That's also pretty brutal. I'm that quite, is brutal, but it's true. I'm a bit tough love, I'm afraid. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the thing you said is really interesting as well. Certainly you can create these opportunities online, and I hope uh, many women are inspired to do this, are already doing this all over the shop. Um, the thing I would like people to it, it, to be wary of is be careful that you're not doing more hiding. That's what Tara Moore calls it, hiding. So it's where you would create loads and loads of content online where you're not actually exposing yourself to these speaking opportunities. You're not actually pushing yourself out of the comfort zone. You're just generating more and more stuff that makes you feel safe and you're avoiding the thing that could actually really endear you to people, engage people, inspire people, which is, you know, the thing that you did in Australia yeah so just be careful you're not using the internet to avoid and I think it's really valuable to create low level low impact um low pressure speaking opportunities in your day-to-day life that's a great way to start practicing you can create these speaking opportunities for yourself by giving a vote of thanks at a friend's birthday party for example and you know nobody's going to invite you to do that nobody's going to say please will you give a vote of thanks at my birthday party? <laughs> but if you did do that, I think it would be a lovely way for you, you or anybody to overcome their fear of public speaking in a small, safe place. And also they would learn that actually other people really appreciate that and they find it really endearing and sweet. And I think creating these opportunities on a small scale is the way to building up to creating them on a large scale and then the world doesn't end and the sky doesn't fall so you've got a bit of evidence to take with you for the next occasion that that it's going to work out yeah absolutely and the reason the world doesn't end and the, the sky doesn't fall in I'm afraid it's a tragic tragic reason is because none of us are that important <laughs> yeah. we're not this is a really awful thing to learn but <laughs> it's also quite a liberating thing yeah Nobody actually cares about you that much. Um, that's galling, but also liberating. Um, I, I'm reminded of, I don't know if people will know this. I did not know this until I started investigating stuff for this book about women and stage fright. Um, but Adele, multi-million selling artist, probably one of the richest women in the world undeniable talent well whether you like her or not she has an undeniable talent I love her she's chronic stage fright so much so that she has physically vomited on the front row of her audience (laughs) oh god and none of us ever found out about that I don't remember that being a thing I don't remember anybody reporting this I didn't define her no no so really terrible things can happen and nobody gives a shit. <laughs> <laughs> That's the beauty of it. Um, I remember there's um, a singer I really like called Marina and the Diamonds. And um, one thing that really helped me was I found a load of her early performances on YouTube, like in a studio when she was just about to, just before she released her debut album. And she was really nervous. You could see that she was really nervous. And now, like however many years on, she's like full of sass and confidence when she gets on stage. And that was my, one of my first things of times of seeing it and thinking, oh, it's just practice. Like she just got used to it and now it's not scary anymore. 
Yeah, it is just practice. It really is. And there's a book that um, Farah Store, the editor of Cosmopolitan magazine, just put a book out called The Discomfort Zone, which mm. um, kind of really syncs well with everything that you talk about in your book, really, about kind of finding that space that's just beyond what feels comfortable, because that's where you're really going to find your growth. Yeah, absolutely. I'm doing an event with Farah Store in Henley, actually, on uh, next week. Yeah, so I'm really looking forward to meeting her. Yeah, but that is it. It's it's just pushing a little bit outside of that comfort zone. And I love what you said about Marina and the Diamonds. I think the more women do this, the more we will get used to seeing people who are a bit nervous when they do this and be fine yeah. with it. Because yeah, we never see it. Or we very, very rarely see it. So that when we do, it kind of feels a bit like, oh, no. really interesting example for that, if people want to look it up, is... Um, the speech that Emma Watson gave about, I think it's the hashtag him for her oh, yeah. speech that she gave at the United Nations. And she's incredibly nervous in this speech. Unbelievably nervous. Uh, I find it extraordinary to watch. It's very powerful, beautifully written speech. She delivers it beautifully, but it clearly means a lot to her. And she was very anxious while she was giving it. And she obviously made the decision to not be an actress mm. once she gave that speech because she must have the skills to deliver it as Hermione or deliver it as some other badass character. Yeah. She could have chosen to do that. But she thought she must have thought, no, I'm just going to do this as myself. And there's going to be a cost to that, which is that people are going to see my nerves, but tough because it will be more real. And it's really powerful for that. It kind of gives it more power because it makes it a human being on the stage instead of a perfect speaker. Yeah, and I think actually if she had done it as a sort of badass Hermione, I think people would have ignored it. And instead it created this huge impact that kick-started a whole feminist thing like way before Me Too and all of that. It was it captured loads of headlines because it had the ring of authenticity that, oh wow, she really does care about this. What's the best experience you've had of public speaking? Oh, what a great question. Um, I guess two things spring to mind. One is when I've come off stage after my own show, I've done four Edinburgh shows, stand-up comedy, and I know that it landed with the audience and they enjoyed it. And I'll usually do about 25 shows in a run and I'll have maybe four shows where I really feel that really strongly. And it's the the feeling you get from the audience at the end of the show is just so undeniable um yeah that's amazing and the other um time I felt really great <laughs> which is totally not down to me but I don't care this <laughs> when I've been I hosted Graham Norton's book tour and that was for like the biggest audience was I think 2,000 people and <laughs> the love that he gets is just so massive and I felt like I could hive off like a tiny bit of it for myself <laughs> so tragic and so that was a really fascinating experience to be with someone who commands I mean he has a really amazing relaxed presence yeah so in the moment he's got no ego he's exactly as he seems there's no fronts to him um that was very inspiring and and to experience the goodwill that he gets uh from an audience um and also you know he was he was very sweet and supportive to me and gave me lots of advice and 
um, yeah, so that was a really inspiring, inspiring time. Oh, what two amazing examples. And it's interesting, actually, what you say about the stand-up, because presumably it's pretty much the same material in each of those shows, but it doesn't always come together as well as it can do. Oh, yeah, and that can be hugely frustrating because one day you'll think, uh, excuse me, could you please go and speak to the audience yesterday? Because <laughs> they understood this and they got it. How funny. It's just it's chemistry. and yeah. Um, but, of course, you are at fault. <laughs> <laughs> well, are you or is it the whole relationship? Well, you are really. I don't, there are some stand-ups who will say, you know, there's no there's no bad show there's only a bad audience and I would probably um I would probably say the opposite like okay not everybody's gonna like you but it's your job to try and make them like you Mm. um but yeah it it all becomes a bit relative I see now that when I have a bad show now it's probably the level of when I would have a good show three years ago yeah like the level changes so it's what you're you're defining as a bad show not necessarily anybody else yeah, the rock bottom gets a little bit higher. <laughs> yeah. And that's what we can all hope for. Let's all bring our rock bottoms up a little bit higher. Yeah, that's what I'm here to do. That's my mission on earth, <laughs> is to just raise people's rock bottom up very slightly. <laughs> so, Viv, if people are ready to raise their rock bottoms, where can they find you? So go to uh, any bookseller or uh, internet outlet that sells books and get your hands on How to Own the Room, Women in the Arts of Brilliant Speaking by me, Viv Groskop. And I will link to it in the show notes as well as all of those um, examples of great speeches that you've mentioned. And you're on Instagram as well. What's your handle? Uh, my Instagram is at Viv Groskop, which is a handle that nobody else wants. Um, <laughs> not even I want it. And I'm still learning, I feel, at Instagram. So I'm following you assiduously to try and learn how to do it better. Well, we'll all come and embrace you and follow you. And are you, are you a Twitter person? Oh, yeah. I've been a Twitter person for a long time, so I'm much more comfortable there. But I'm trying to get the Twitter level of comfort on Instagram now. That's my challenge. Come on over. We're much friendlier on Instagram. Twitter can be quite, like, confrontational. You don't get that on Instagram. Thank God for that. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you. I've linked to everything Viv mentioned in our conversation today over in the show notes, which you'll find at meandola.co.uk forward slash podcast 56. And her book, How to Own the Room, is available imminently wherever you are. Viv and I would really love to continue this conversation with you online and just hear about how you feel about all the topics we've covered today. So if you want to find us, I'm at meandola on Twitter and Instagram, and I'm going to put all the link to both of us on social media on the show notes as well. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next week. Thank you.